0: Hello, greetings, thank you for your interest in Spiritual Matters. I'm so glad that you joined us today. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Let's explore perhaps the least recognized and most poorly understood fundamental of the faith and yet for early Christians it is the fundamental of the faith the resurrection. Now a lot of people have heard of Christianity And a lot of people understand that christianity involves jesus dying for the forgiveness of sins a lot of people even know about the celebration of easter but what have they heard if anything about the resurrection even among christians there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about the resurrection what it demands and why it's so important and so it's good to wonder what is the resurrection What does resurrection mean how was resurrection understood by jews and gentiles in the first century what can be known about jesus resurrection and what can be known about the general resurrection resurrection in english is the coming back to life of the dead the greek term for it is anastasis literally means to stand again and so it's a raising up rising a rising from the dead so what does it mean to have the dead come back to life Well, resurrection can refer to what we'd consider a form of resuscitation in which a dead person is brought back to life for a period of time before finally succumbing to death again. In Hebrews 11 and verse 35, the Hebrews author talks about women who receive their dead back by resurrection. And the author most likely is speaking of the raising of the widow of Zarephath's son and the son of the Shunammite woman in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4 as uh, resurrections. In the same way, Jesus brought back to life the son of the widow of Nain and Lazarus in Luke 7 and in John 11. Peter uh, raises Tabitha, or Dorcas, from the dead as well in Acts 9 and verse 41. Now, let's be clear, all of these situations involved the miraculous use of the power of God to raise the dead. And yet, all of those who arose that we just mentioned would die again. And they would die a final time, so to speak. But this idea of resuscitation is not the fullness of resurrection which became the hope of Israel and manifest in Jesus of Nazareth. And So we do well to wonder, okay, so how was resurrection understood by Jews and Gentiles of the first century? The hope of resurrection becomes explicit in Daniel 12 and in verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's expectation here of a general resurrection of all the dead on the final day to either everlasting life or everlasting shame. So this is not a mere resuscitation only to die again. The idea is that what is obtained is in fact everlasting. This trend would persist throughout the Second Temple period, and it's made explicit in many of the writings of that period. And some of these writings are not as familiar to us because they come in the Apocrypha or what's also called the Pseudepigrapha. Uh, They're not inspired writings, but they give an idea of what's going on in Judaism at the time. And one such book is known as 2nd Maccabees. And in 2nd Maccabees chapter 7, there's a famous account of a woman who has seven sons and they're all martyred at the hands of Antiochus IV, the, the terrible Macedonian Seleucid king of the time. Uh, In that passage in 2 Maccabees 7, 10, 11, the third son stretches out his tongue and hands for torturing and says, God is going to give them back to him again. Uh, In verse 14, the fourth expressed confidence in the resurrection of life. And in verses 23 and 29, the mother encouraged her sons, confident that God would give them life again, and especially said that to her youngest uh, son. Judas the Maccabee himself will be commended for providing a sin offering for the dead, and the author said he kept the resurrection in mind, something that would be foolish to do if those who had fallen would not rise again in 2 Maccabees 12, 43-45. Now again, these are not inspired accounts, and Judas' example would unfortunately be used to justify indulgences and all kinds of ideas contrary to the revealed word in future times. But they testify to the viewpoints of many in Second Temple Judaism. These martyrdom stories circulated broadly, and it helped to enhance this idea that yes, the dead will be raised at some time in the future. And this helps us understand what was meant and expected when Jews and Gentiles discussed resurrection in the first century. So we hear in John 5 and verse 28, uh, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You can even hear in there those echoes of Daniel 12 and verse 2. And so Jesus is saying that this is absolutely going to happen one day. And, And notice also the emphasis, those in the tombs will come out of the tomb. And we have to ask the question, as we'll discuss further what comes out of tombs. In John 11, in verse 24, uh, Martha is speaking with Jesus. And Martha declares the confidence of those who had resurre- uh, confidence in resurrection in Israel. When she says, I know that he, my brother, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's that understanding in Second Temple Judaism, that God will raise the dead on the final day of judgment. Uh, Matthew 27, verses 52 through 53, is an uh, account found only in Matthew. And honestly, it leaves a whole lot more uh, to, left unanswered than it would begin to help to make things clear. But it's worth noting in this context, uh, "...the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city." And appeared to many. It shows that some holy ones arose from the past, walked into Jerusalem, appeared to people when Jesus was raised. Now, where did they go after that? Is that really a full resurrection, just a momentary resuscitation? Something like that is not made explicitly clear. Uh, But at least we see the idea that they came out of the tomb and they appeared to people, people saw them. Interestingly, it's Jesus' opponents in Matthew 27, 62-66, who understood very well what Jesus meant when he talked about him uh, rising from the dead. Sir, they say in verse 63, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away from, tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud be worse than the first. So even though the chief priests denied the idea of resurrection, they understood what that meant and that maybe people would be looking for him to arise from the dead, that the tomb would be empty, and that Jesus would then be alive somewhere, somehow. In Acts 23, verses 6 through 8, Paul stands before the Sanhedrin. He sees that it's divided between Sadducees and Pharisees, and he says that he is a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, and uh, he is on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And... Uh, Luke comments about the division about the resurrection between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and Josephus confirms uh, that division of opinion uh, in Wars of the Jews, uh, book uh, 2, 8, 14. In Acts 17, 30-32, when Paul stands before the Athenians and proclaims the story, things about Jesus, Luke tells us that when he spoke of the resurrection of the dead, many mocked. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, Paul's trying to figure out how these Corinthian Christians would not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because resurrection would have considered preposterous to most Gentiles. Even those who follow Jesus were tempted to deny the resurrection of the dead because of Greek philosophical views that denigrate the body. Now, so let's none be deceived and let us be very clear. Something that we've seen throughout this whole time resurrection in the first century involved nothing less than the reanimation of the physical body from the dead and often the transformation of that reanimated body for eternal life that's what everybody had in mind when they're talking about resurrection here in the new testament so when we understand that let's now look at the resurrection of jesus now jesus had foretold his resurrection on many occasions we see it first in matthew 16:21. in parallel accounts right after the disciples confess that he is a christ he says he's going to go to jerusalem he's going to suffer from the chief priests and elders he's going to be killed but rise on the third day and he reinforces again in chapter 17 of matthew chapter 20 of matthew uh in john's gospel in john 2 all the way when he toward the beginning when he says destroy this temple in three days i will raise it up they all thought he was talking about the temple in jerusalem when he was talking about the temple of his body And as we saw in Matthew 27 and verse 63, this was a feature of Jesus' teaching that even his opponents knew that he would rise on the third day. So this was not something hidden only to a few people. Now, the story of Jesus' resurrection is chronicled in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and in John 20 and 21. And when we look at any and all of these accounts, it's very important to note uh, some things as the narrative proceeds. The women come to the tomb when it's really early in the morning. They're not expecting Jesus to be alive. They're going to finish the preparing of the body that they couldn't finish because it was done in haste on uh, Friday Eve before the Sabbath. They even wonder how they're going to move the stone away. When they get there, they have angelic visitation that tells them, Why are you looking for Jesus of Nazareth among the dead? He is not dead, but he is living. Uh, John will go into greater detail, talking about how Mary will see that the tomb is empty. We'll go back, run, tell Peter and John. Peter and John run in. They see it's empty, except that the grave cloth has been folded and set aside. uh, And they then believe. So in all of these accounts, Jesus' body is no longer there. The tomb is empty. In all four accounts, the women and the disciples will see and speak with Jesus in his resurrection body. Um uh, the women Mary so powerfully in John 20 asks the gardener, Where have you taken his body? Let me know so I can take it. And he, she actually is talking to Jesus. Jesus says, Mary and rabbi she understands who it is she's talking to. Um and uh it's interesting though that even though Jesus appears to them in the resurrection by and they see in the resurrection by they don't necessarily recognize him first, like I said. Uh Mary Magdalene thought he was a gardener at first. In Luke's account, the two disciples heading to Emmaus do not recognize Jesus who's been walking and talking with them until they break bread together. In, in Luke 24, 13-17, 30-31. Uh, Jesus will just appear in a room in verse 36 where the disciples are at. But he then will tell them in at 39-43, uh, Look, I am not a spirit. I have flesh and bones. You can touch me. He, do you have any food? And they had a fish, and so he ate the fish before them, and that is to demonstrate to them he is not a mere phantasm, he is not a ghost, that he is alive in the body. In John's account, Jesus just appears in the upper room, even though the door was shut. Uh, Thomas, famous doubting Thomas, right? Uh, but even that's very important because Thomas's doubt reinforces the fact that the disciples weren't just all sitting around waiting for him to come out of the tomb. The disciples were quite aware that dead people stay dead. Thomas wanted evidence. Thomas wanted to be able to touch the wounds and so Jesus invites him to put his hand in the place of those wounds. He actually the text never says he does. He just ba- falls down and says my Lord and my God. Um, but also the fact the wounds are still there. Uh, testifying of the things that he had suffered is also compelling in John 20:19 20, through 27. The Apostle Paul will base his apostleship on the idea that he saw Jesus in the resurrection, but the time that he would have seen Jesus in the resurrection, described in Acts chapter 9, would be long after his ascension, uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, and verse, chapter 15, and verse 8. Uh, Paul also bears witness that James, and the Lord's brother, and over 500 Christians at one time saw the Lord Jesus in the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians fifteen five through 7 now, it's very important to note that this narrative is composed to render any other attempted explanation void. First of all, Jesus was dead. The Romans knew how to execute people. And they poked him with the spear, and out came blood and water in John 19:31 31-37. It's also important to note that he was not seen in some pathetically weakened state, uh, which would have been necessary if, in fact, somehow he had just lapsed unconscious and then came out of it a day and a half later they didn't go to the wrong tomb. The disciples did not enter a back way. Many women witnessed Joseph of Merrimathea putting Jesus' body into the tomb, and it was a freshly cut tomb out of the rock. That's emphasized in Matthew and in John. Uh, it has no other access points but the front, and there's a large stole rolled in front of it, which again, a weakened Jesus would not have been able to move by himself. The disciples did not steal the body, even though that was the claim that was made later in Matthew 28, and, and Matthew is taking pains to, to show the fallacy of it, uh, there was a guard brought to that purpose. That's why Matthew even discussed what the chief priests and elders were saying to Pilate. There was a guard there, and the guard said, you know, later on, they stole the body while we slept, which is even more difficult to believe, because that would require a full Roman guard to be sleeping in the middle of the night, And somehow not awoken by the sound of the stone being rolled and the commotion of the body being taken. Which is beyond ludicrous because they all knew that to not do their job meant death. And also the fact that they didn't die should also cause some reason for speculation. Beyond that, the disciples are dispirited throughout. They're not the ones out at the tomb first. They're trying to figure out what happened. They're dispirited. There's no suggestion given that they are inclined to go do this. The story's not written where they're out waiting for Jesus on Sunday morning asking what took him so long. Jesus' resurrection was unexpected. Neither Mary nor the disciples expected Jesus to be risen from the dead. Thomas's doubt was not misplaced. They're not credulous fools. They knew that the dead people stayed dead. They probably knew that better than we do. They lived in a very dark time, difficult time in Judea and in Galilee. They all expected a resurrection on the final day, not Jesus to be raised first. And their resurrection was not a hallucination. It would be hard enough to claim a mass hallucination of 500 people at one time, but here's the thing. A lot of people who have hallucinations have them repeatedly over and over again. Early Christians insisted that they saw Jesus in the resurrection for 40 days until he ascended, and then those appearances did not happen to those same people in that same way. As we can see in Acts 1, through 1-11. And so, the best way to make sense of all the evidence that's been given is the way it's composed in the story. Jesus arose from the dead, and he remains as Lord to this day in the resurrection body. This is something very important to keep in mind throughout. When Jesus died on the cross, his soul or spirit did not die. In Luke twenty three forty three, he tells the th- thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. So when he gave up his spirit on the cross, he began to experience life after death in the afterlife until the third day. On the first day of the week, Jesus arose from the grave, his body reanimated and transformed from mortality as the resurrection, life after life after death. Very interestingly, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, we don't know how long after all these events this happens in Acts 7. It's at least after Pentecost. We know that for certain. So, Jesus has already ascended. He's already in heaven. And Luke says that he's granted this vision, uh, before he's stoned, of, of God and Jesus at the right hand. And Stephen says, I see the Son of Man. Standing at the right hand of God. Son of man is the human one. Acts 7, 55-56. Absolutely, with the evocations of Daniel 7, 13, and 14. But it's still saying that he's human. Paul, as we said, saw Jesus in the resurrection even after that point. In, in Acts chapter 9, he insists, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He puts himself as a resurrection witness, even though one as untimely born in 15, chapter 15 and verse 8. But he insists he's seen Jesus in the resurrection like the other disciples have. And in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, Paul will tell us that there is, presently, present tense, one mediator between God and man, the anthropos, the human Jesus Christ. And we see this vividly illustrated in Romans 6, uh, 1 through 11, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Uh, in, understandably so, because in verses three through f- uh, four he talks about baptism as a spiritual uh, death and resurrection. Uh, but the passage is really about the reason we can't we don't sin anymore because we've died to it. Why have we died to it? Well, We died to it in baptism because we put the death the man of sin there so that we could rise to walk in newness of life. Well, how can that work? Because well, when Jesus died, he died to sin. Death no longer has dominion over him. So the life he now lives, he lives to God. So let's go back again. At any point in this story, has Jesus' soul died? We insist that no. This entire time, the soul of Jesus never died. Jesus went to paradise. What died? His body. So what kind of death no longer has dominion over him? The death of the physical body. What Paul's saying is Jesus in his transformed resurrection body is no longer subject to death. And that's the confidence we have that if we die to our sins in Christ, we have spiritual life with him. But that requires that Jesus remains in the resurrection body which is a stumbling block to some, but it is very much insisted upon in multiple scriptures, as we've seen. And this is the apostolic proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Jesus, who lived, served, suffered, and died, was raised from the dead by the power of God, and now he rules as Lord and Christ. In Acts two fourteen through 36 that's the core of Peter's first sermon. The apostles insisted that Jesus' resurrection led to his ascension and authority. Jesus is the one like a son of man who received the eternal dominion from the ancient of days, uh, prophesied in Daniel 7:13 through 14 And the resurrection makes sense of how Jesus could be human but reign eternally. He overcame death in the resurrection. And so the kingdom of God in Christ is built upon the confidence that God raised Jesus from the dead. If Jesus is not risen, then we are lost in our sins, and of all people, most to be pitied. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 20 and that's interesting to see, that Paul gambles the whole faith on the resurrection. He doesn't deal with anything else, not to deny anything else, but it's the resurrection that without that, all of it is in vain. And so that's why we do well to emphasize and to recognize how important it is to everything uh, that has gone on. Because it's changed everything if we understand what God has done in it. So, Jesus is risen from the dead. We understand what resurrection is. What does that mean for us, though? Well, it's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 15, we just talked about 1 through 20. Beginning in verse 20. Then comes the end when he delivers a kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Notice there that Paul talks about Jesus as the first fruits In Colossians 1 and verse 18, he's called the firstborn from the dead. So Paul is also continuing this theme, Jesus is the second Adam. First Adam brought death, he sinned. Second Adam, Jesus brings life, he lives. The first fruits, though, comes out of this idea in Leviticus 23, 9 through 14, that the first fruits that you get every year when you have a crop, the first fruits that you harvest, you dedicate to God. And the reason you dedicate it to God is that you thank God for what God has done for you, but also it's the confidence that if you dedicate the first fruits, God will give you the second fruits, the third fruits, fourth fruits, however you want to look at the rest of the harvest. And so, if Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, that means that he is raised in the confidence that there will be a second fruit, third fruit, fourth fruit, that there will be this resurrection day where others will obtain the resurrection from the dead. This is also the hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, in which Paul says... um, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. What's the difference between those who are asleep and those who are alive? Well, it's physical sleep. Physical so It's the idea of death. How is it asleep? Well, because of the belief that the body will rise. And that's what is underneath all of this. This confidence that on the day of judgment, Christians will rise from the dead. Going all the way back to what we saw in John 5, 28 and 29. And so Paul and John both expect those who share in the resurrection of life to be like Jesus as he is in his resurrection. In 1 John 3, 1-3, John says that we don't know what we're going to be. We can overstate this passage a little bit. Some people think that because we don't know what we will be, we can't say anything about it. When Paul shows that we know a little bit about it, based upon certain uh, metaphors in 1 Corinthians 15... Uh, as we're going to see um the idea is we're going to be as jesus is whatever jesus is right now that's what we're going to be how exactly does that work how are we going to be able to transcend the space-time continuum to go through walls all these other things those are the kind of things we don't know we're going to be like there's a lot that we don't understand about how the resurrection is going to work but we know it can work and know it will work because we've seen it in jesus In Philippians 3, at the end of the passage, all of which is about the resurrection, really, in verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul is expecting Jesus to transform our bodies to be like his body, the way it is right now. And so with these guides, now we can go back to the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul wants to answer these questions how are the dead raised with what kind of body are they given and he does this uh, illustration with plant life we plant a a seed it dies to be raised to something greater and it's also different you plant a seed it comes out as a plant and uh, we may consider that seed hibernation but that idea of that you plant a seed uh, based on the death of the previous plant and now you have a new plant uh, provides that idea hey resurrection isn't that crazy And he talks about all the different kinds of creatures that have different bodies. And therefore, it will be the same with the resurrection. And that the body in verses 42 through 44 that we now have is corrupted, it's in dishonor, it's weak, and this term natural, which is the Greek sukikos. The resurrection body will be incorruptible, honorable, raised in power, and spiritual. Greek pneumaticos. So much mischief has been done by choosing to translate these terms as natural and spiritual. The idea, well, the natural body is see spiritual body, and they want to emphasize the spiritual part over the body part. But Paul will further explain that even in this passage itself. He will go on to say, uh, Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Uh, the first man became a living being. That's from Genesis 2, and it was the idea that God gave him his suke, the breath of life. That's the suke, body, the body that is, enlivened by the breath of life that means the pneumatical body is a body that is enlivened empowered by the spirit and so this the issue is not whether or not there's a body there's a natural body there's a spiritual body it's a psychical body i.e enlivened empowered by the suhe the breath of life and then there's a pneumatical body the body enlivened or empowered by the pneuma the spirit and so it's the what's enlivening or empowering the body that's making the big contrast, not the quality of the body. And then, of course, there's the half verse that everybody wants to appeal to. I tell you this, brothers: flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's the end of it, right there. Boom! Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. It can't be physical. But so much violence is always done to the text when you put a period where God doesn't put a period, and Paul continues because he continues. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we shouldn't just stop with that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable down inherit the imperishable. So, what's going to happen? Well, Paul then speaks of a transformation. That perishable is going to put on imperishability. That mortal will put on immortality. Horrific violence is done to the scriptures, suggests Paul is talking about the elimination or removal of the physical body so that we can be pure spirits and enter the kingdom. Notice here that it's the imperishable that's going to inherit the imperishable. How do we get the imperishable? It's not the elimination of the body, it's putting on. It's like putting on clothing. It's a transformation where what is transformed continues to exist, but it is enhanced, it is made better. So what Paul is saying is that we cannot inherit the kingdom in our current form. As this flesh and blood, we cannot inherit the kingdom. But we can inherit it once we're transformed for immortality. And Paul will then help us make good theological sense of all of this in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption option as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we wait we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So here Paul's talking about the creation, and it's been subjected to futility and corruption. It wants to be set free. It looks forward to being delivered into liberty of the children of God. We also yearn for this day to receive the adoption as sons, the redemption of the body, as Paul puts it. This is how God glorifies his people, at least in part. Very importantly, this is a hope not yet realized. That this is different from the adoption as sons that we've received already. Because in Romans 6, 1-7, through we talked about the fact that we can put to death the man of sin. And in chapter 8, 1-17, through Paul has just finished saying that we've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but to have received the spirit of adoption as sons, with whom we cry, Abba, Father, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. So we're already heirs, but yet we have not received the fullness of that inheritance, uh, the redemption of our bodies. So how is that possible? How can we both have received the adoption and not received the adoption? Well, there's the fact that we have the adoption in, in spiritual terms, that we are reconciled to God in spirit, But our bodies are still subject to corruption and decay, and it's going to be when we transcend that, when we have the redemption of the body, i.e. the day of resurrection, which is not yet, we will have the fullness of that inheritance on that day. What Paul is doing is reminding us what the real problem is, and therefore it's appropriate solution. Is the creation the problem, as the pagans imagine, the Greek philosophers and the Gnostics, even many to this day in Western society? No. God's creation was very good in Genesis 1.31. So what's the problem? The introduction of sin and death and corruption that came from it into the creation. We see here in chapter 8. It's also in Romans 5, 12-21. So if sin and death are the problem, what's the solution? Well, victory over and deliverance from sin and death. And that's been accomplished by Jesus in his death and resurrection in Romans 5, 8, and 1 Corinthians 15. And so resurrection is thus the ultimate promise. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living Life in the body will be restored and transformed for immortality. In this way, humanity, body and soul, is fully redeemed. And so that's the reason we get the picture of the end that we get in Revelation 20:11 20, through 22, 6. Someone informed no doubt, by John 5:28 and 29, that when the Lord returns, those who have done wickedly, those who are not in the book of life, will rise unto the resurrection of shame and contempt. They'll be cast into the lake of fire with Satan, death, and Hades for all eternity. But those who have obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and have done well will inherit eternal life, envisioned in the new heavens and new earth as a glorified city coming down from heaven in which the Lord God dwells with Jesus the Lamb, the light of the whole, where there's no more pain, no more suffering, or anything evil, with the river and trees of life as in Eden, the end will be as the beginning, and man is restored to full communion with God in the resurrection. And it's for this reason, at the end of Revelation, John says, and therefore we can say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So we've explored the resurrection. And we hopefully have seen that resurrection is bringing back to life what was dead life after life after death. Resurrection is a strong hope in Second Temple Judaism. God raised Jesus from the dead and he lives in the resurrection to this day. The Christian's hope is in the resurrection that God will raise him or her to eternal life on the final day, just like he did Jesus. And so let us put our hope in Jesus in the bodily resurrection of the dead, praying for and advancing the day of his coming so that we may obtain eternal life in that resurrection. We're again so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you've been truly strengthened uh by this great hope a message and we encourage you please share it far and wide that people may have a better understanding of that critical hope that is in us uh, of of the day of resurrection if you have any questions or comments about anything that you've heard if you uh like to have a prayer request you'd like to learn more about becoming a christian maybe you'd like to have a bible study or you'd like to learn more about us please find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org we're also on many forms of social media If you'd like to contact me personally, please visit my website at com. That's www.DeVerboVitae.com. Again, thank you. Have a great day.